0: how you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome once again to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember as well as a show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters which you can grab for free on our website at techcentral.ie. Joining me as always is our Editor-in-Chief Niall Kitson. Uh, Niall, I suppose the big story this week is that uh, the iPhone X uh, has been released uh, grand will get you into, into your lava are you planning on getting one <laughs>
1: uh, I can't afford them, to be honest. So uh, I, like the rest of the world, I will be tracking you know, developments internationally. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm, I'm exactly the same. I'll, I'll wait and see. I'll be very interested to see uh, what real world reviewers think of this. Uh, and I'm sure YouTube will be full of videos over the uh, the coming days of, I got a new iPhone X and this is what it's like. Um, so we wait We wait and see what happens. Um, the big story, though, of course, is uh, that Facebook and Twitter and Google this week all got a Serious kicking in the rear end.
1: They certainly did. Um, Now, uh, there was, uh, this is all in the States, of course, there was a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee tasked with looking into the um, role that social media played in the last presidential election, which saw Mr. Donald Trump elected. Uh, One of the famous remarks that he had at the time was that Twitter got him elected. Um, Now, we are finding out more and more about what was going on on social media around the time of the election and it increasingly seems to have little to do with Mr. Trump and his, um, his fulminations uh, on social media but more to do with targeted advertising um, uh, backed by uh, Russia apparently. So what happened during the week was Facebook, Twitter and Google were hauled in front of the subcommittee and questioned about their um, inadvertent role in the election and how around 126 million Americans were targeted with uh, advertisements from abroad uh, that were effectively fake news. Um, now, there's a couple of interesting things to do with this. I mean, what, what is your overall position on fake news, Dusty? Is it, is it effective? Do you think it's a, a, a nothing burger, as they like to say?
0: No, I think, I think it's wildly effective because all it takes is for, let's say, uh, one person to not realise that's fake news, to share it. And then everybody else who hears it will will trust their friend and then trust what the news is that they're telling. So uh, I can see that it is very, very effective system of Chinese whispers, if you like. But it's obviously not a good thing.
1: Yeah, or Russian whispers, as as the case may be. Um, So uh, very interesting testimony from Colin Stretch, who is um, vice president and general counsel at Facebook. So he's the legal brain uh, behind the social network. And uh, he was brought in. Uh, there was a four person committee, I, I, uh, if I remember correctly, and one of them is Senator Al Franken, who used to be a comedian back in the day and uh, a very astute man, a very witty man, um, who puff, Stretch absolutely through the ringer on this. Uh, and he had one excellent point if Facebook can deal with billions of data points a day, how can they not connect uh, political ads targeting US users? Um, that happened to be paid for in rubles.
0: <laughs> yeah, I could see the comedian coming out of him there, but it is an I excellent mean, point. It's really well that's made. That's
1: a pretty sick burn, isn't it?
0: It is. What was the response from Facebook? Do you know? Uh,
1: effectively, they they put their hands up and said, "Yeah, we missed that." Uh, <laughs> we, we
0: missed that saws mm. <laughs> tote, tote sorry for that we'll do better <laughs> in future so what do you think is going to happen because a lot of these committees get together and they kind of get yada And what happened it, it's, it's really and, and, and apportioning blame and then maybe handing out some kind of a fine do you think it's actually going to change things in the future with fake news on various social media
1: okay let's break this down if this was uh, a hearing in front of the European uh, Court of Justice right? You could be damn sure regulations would be passed and social networks would be fighting them tooth and nail right now. Um, It's the states, they believe in light touch slash no regulation Um, and, you know, people don't like it that so much data is collected on them by Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. But they tolerate it. So, I think very little is going to come out of this. I think, um, you know, an element of public shaming is good uh, and it will force networks to be better. Uh, Of course, you know, the advertisers pay for everything. They pay for development. They pay for, you know, we we know that in the States, donors pay for politicians. In media, advertisers are the only thing that really holds sway over, over the media. Uh, and i guess in ireland as well mm. but you know when you're dealing with a market so large and powerful as the states it really is a lot of money at stake mm. so uh in this climate of you know buy american re reshoring jobs uh i think it's certainly in uh the tech company's interest to be seen to be more proactive in um uh protecting its user base mm. uh, from the likes of fake news i i Facebook have had a major turnaround when it, when it has come to the subject of fake news. You, you might remember when it was originally raised, Mark Zuckerberg basically laughed it off, um, saying, yeah, no, definitely didn't have an influence on the election. And now the more that's dug into it, it's like, yeah, it certainly did. And various other scary things had a, an influence on the election as well. I mean, you had a large base of uh, low information non-voters were brought out to the polls, largely on the basis of fake news. And news stories that picked up on specific personality traits within their Facebook profiles and had stories targeted at them. So say, Dusty, for example, you post an awful lot about guns and you post an awful lot about religion. The likes of Cambridge Analytica just hoover that stuff up and go, "Okay, story X, that guy. And Facebook is the platform to do it.
0: Mm. I think uh, you were saying that nothing is going to come of these uh, hearings in the States, but I disagree. I think there may not be any specific outcome from this committee, if you like, but it's something that's going to rumble on in the background and it will definitely come to the fore in the year before the next presidential election as they go through the whole rounds. And it's going to be a massive issue as to what is news and real news and fake news. And particularly if Donald Trump is uh, uh, looking for re-election or even if he's still president at the time, he will be the loudest one saying that's fake news. Of course, of course. Yeah. So listen, we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, we have a brilliant interview uh, this week. I listened to it uh, earlier and uh, I really enjoyed it. We're going to play it now on the show for you. It's with a guy called Gareth Thorpe. Explain to me who or just explain to us who Gareth Thorpe is.
1: Yeah, a man of many talents, really. I mean, we, we talk occasionally on the show about the importance of the arts and technology that, you know, there are STEM subjects, but but there is the extension of which is just STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. Uh, and I think Ger straddles that line really uh, effectively. So
0: listen on. OK, we will. Let's take a listen to that interview with Ger Thorpe right now. This morning I'm out at the Databricks
1: Spark Summit in the Convention Centre in Dublin, where I'm meeting with Jared Thorpe, who is perhaps in order of importance, the innovator of residence at the Library of Congress, um, the co-founder of the Office for Creative Research at NYU, uh, a National Ge- Geographic Explorer, and uh, we haven't mentioned it, but I may as well mention it now. A member of the World Economic Forum Council on Design Innovation. Um, now, Jarrett, your primary interest is in data science and uh, I guess sort of a humanistic view of, uh, of data and how we should um, interact with it or how it treats us. And um, we hear an awful lot uh, in the media that um, data is the new oil. Um, one person that I spoke to actually said that data is the new plutonium. Um, you know, good in the right hands, disastrous in others. What is your analogy for data?
2: Well, I'll get to that in a second. But I want I, the, the uh, data as as oil thing is something we've heard for a long time. Um, I remember hearing it for the first time probably around two thousand and eight, and and I, I don't remember what event I was at, but this this guy strode out on stage and he was very proud to declare that big data is the new oil, and I I just remember thinking like do we need a new oil? (laughs) Because that first oil really put us in a bind, didn't it? I mean, we're only now seeing how large of a problem uh, the very idea of tapping fossil fuels was. So I actually wrote an article um, for Harvard Business Review uh, around that time, maybe 2010, um, talking about how actually the oil metaphor is pretty good. If we take the bad with the good. So, <laughs> if we talk about the damage that it can create, we talk about like um, unethical mining practice. You know, the way I think about uh, angled angled drilling where they'll like drill off of property into another well. Like th- those types of issues are also intrinsic with data. Um, the plutonium one's pretty good. I have a, a friend named Ashkan Sultani who 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 that's one of his favorite metaphors, and to talk about. Um, you know to turn to turn uranium or plutonium or whatever it is into into to weaponize it takes a massive amount of money and infrastructure such that the thing itself is harmless in small quantities um, i think that's kind of right the difference is that as we see with with hacker russian hackers and and, and botnets and so on with a fairly small amount of money, I can spin up a nuclear reactor. You know, I can spin up enough servers to do something dangerous with data. So that's, that's one of the differences. What I don't like about either of those things is that they, they, they detach from us. So they, they're like, oh, this is something we were walking. We, we put a shovel in the earth and we found, right? That's not the case at all. Like, these things would not be in the ground if it hadn't been for us. So I don't think I've ever settled on a good, a good metaphor, um, other than I think something close to agriculture, right, where we're where, um, where sort of planting things in the ground, and out of them is coming a result, um, and, that, and that kind of dual understanding of what is it like to. St- to, to build a data system and what is it like to harvest from the data system I think is useful. I think that's a really interesting
1: analogy because yes, we absolutely do plant our own crops but they're harvested by people that mm. perhaps we
2: we would rather not. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and um, it also, it opens up some nice conversation about what does like a data community garden look like? What does... It also talks you know the conversations about the food pipeline the, the industrialized food pipeline which which we're starting only now to see some of the horrors of uh, and 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 I think those some of those exact questions could be could be asked uh, where data is concerned
1: so the relationship that uh, if you're to put together a hierarchy of knowledge at the moment um, very much data is seen as underpinning absolutely everything you know you you have the data from which comes information, knowledge, and, and wisdom. Do you think that's uh, sort of um, an appropriate way to look at things, or
2: is it a, a flawed paradigm? I think it's a flawed paradigm for a number of reasons. First, there's like a linearity, a linearity there, which I don't think is t- totally true. Like, I think we all know... Anybody who works with computers and software and data in any way knows that it 's kind of an iterative process where you 're starting with you may be starting with some data um, and then and then you you build something and go back to it, but also remember that the data that we 're starting with in the large part when we 're talking about uh, um, the software industry itself is coming from software so you 're building software to generate data, you know, fe- Facebook's entire goal is to is to generate data. And then that data itself then gets used by others. So there's, you can imagine the, all those triangles getting stacked together kind of like Lego. But I think there's a, a bigger problematic there, and that is um, there's a philosophy with data that that you can just go out and collect all you want about it pile it all up on this table, and then decide what to do with it. And and that relies on a fallacy, which is that the active data collection itself is not harmful. It, it, it suggests that it's entirely passive, and that only later do I need wisdom. You know? mm-hmm. uh, but so, so I've redrawn that triangle to put wisdom back at the bottom again, so maybe we think about what, what we're going to collect before we start. And and that, that, I think, is, becomes a slightly useful reframing. But you know, the deeper you get into all these systems, the, the more complicated they are. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to get, I hate to disappoint the next round of big data speakers, but I'm not sure that we're going to get a good thing that fits on a slide that's going to explain what's happening.
1: One of the aspects that I find very interesting about the the great data debate is this assumption that data is accurate or mm. that it has been corrected uh, correctly um, gathered. Yeah. Um, especially when you're dealing with AI systems mm-hmm. and people go, the processing power behind right. this is fantastic, yeah. but it's completely reliant on the quality of yeah, the data yeah, the that comes into it. Um, do you think that's a problem? Data scientists um, have yet to communicate effectively.
2: Yes. Um, so so. I had a really interesting experience of being able to work at the New York Times for two and a half years, um, which meant that I got to work with journalists closely, but also with data scientists. And what I think you see is that data scientists are very good at figuring out how to uh, take a set of data and come up with some interesting um, outcomes from that data, whatever those outcomes may be. What journalists are really good at is being critical of the data itself, to say, like, wait a minute, who, reco- who, who collected this data and why? How did they do it? What's missing? All those things. Um, data scientists are not very good at that. And journalists tend to not be very good at the, the thing that data scientists are good at. So I think we're starting to see some really interesting things at J schools around the world um, where, where we're starting to see kind of this hybrid between data scientists and, and journalists. And I, when I talk to data scientists about how they can be better at their job, I always tell them to look to journalism because there is a, there's an inherent criticality that comes in journalism that's very important. And there's also an inherent set of ethics, which is very important. And and both both of those things tie really nicely together. You, know, you, you talked about um, training data, and training data I think is one of the largest problems that no one wants to look at right now. Um, machine learning systems are getting much 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 better, but the training data is not. And 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 most often that training data is coming from a group of people who are already being served by these systems. So uh, that training data tends to exclude the elderly, tends to exclude the poor. It tends to exclude the incarcerated. It tends to include uh, to, to, dis- to, to um, exclude um, illegal migrants. So as a result, the systems that we build on top of them are also going to exclude those people. And so... That's a huge problem. Um, I mentioned in my talk, um, the AI Now Institute, which is in New York City, um, founded by um, two really amazing researchers, um, Kate Crawford and Meredith Whitaker, and they just released their um, 2017 report. And in fact, their number one uh, recommendation in their report is for public service institutions as a start to kind of stop doing that (laughs) and, 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 and that th- those that is a good start. I think the a good start for for us about asking how we should do this better. When I give talks to audiences like at this conference, there's there's a lot of people who are nodding their head, and a lot of people who say, "Well, this is nice, but we got to make we're business. You know, we have to go make money. So maybe let's start with the governments and public institutions and say, "Hey, let's figure out how to do it right there," and maybe that we can trickle that down. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that we're dealing with with data at the moment is that it's treated as a value-free commodity. That yeah. it's being generated, and depending which side of the Atlantic you're on, yeah. uh, you're, it either gets used as you know the backbone of somebody's commercial model, or you know it's designed to be siloed away and, and protected. Yeah. How do you negotiate that tension? Is there a, a, an ethical way to use data? In a way that recognizes the commercial necessity of the technology sector, but respects the right of the individual to maintain their own privacy.
2: That is a question that needs longer than we have on this podcast to answer correctly. But I think it's a central it's a central question to this because, um, again, you know, I, when I when I talk about the things that I talk about in a, in a, in America in particular, I, I, I tend to get. A reaction of saying like whoa 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 like do not stop the machine of the market and and that machine is is somehow both all powerful and very very delicate like we, we <laughs> I don't know which one of them is, which one of them I could believe on on any given day um, so it, in here's what I believe in and maybe this is a utopian thing is that yes I do think there is way that we can use data. For commercial value and also individual value and respect people's rights, it's hard. Though it's it's as hard of a problem uh, as how to scale a database to deal with a terabyte of data a day. It's or you know a petabyte of data or whatever that is. It's that hard of a problem, and you know, engineers get so excited about that problem, <laughs> but they don't get excited about the other problem. Um, and so so, what I would love to see is I would love to see. Uh, a corporation like Google spending as much time trying to innovate along those directions as they are with driverless cars or whatever it else is they're looking for. Because it's a hard problem. So let's look at a few of the applications that, that you're working on at the moment, because
1: you know, it's very nice to talk about data in the abstract terms, but you know, let's, let's not forget that it's in- yeah. incredibly useful in, in our lives. Yeah. So uh, one of your projects at the moment is with the, the Library of Congress, and what I find really interesting about it is this mixture of offline and online data. So tell us a little bit about the work you're doing there.
2: Well, so I I um I was asked by the library to come and be their innovator in residence for six months. So I'm about a month into that process, and uh, the beauty of it is it's really open ended. So uh, my job at the end of six months is to come up with an artwork or a proposal of, about an artwork that will that will think about what is the new role of a library, um, both in sort of a digital context, but but in in a in a world where uh, our culture is so defined by social networks and by data and so on and so on, what does a library do and, and feel like? Um, th- for me, what that has meant is is two things. And one, one and you've d- you've done the divide really well. So I spent the last week or so digging through the library's MARC records, which are are um, they're, they're the data files of their catalog. So. Um, I've been spending, spending time with 9 million books and, and trying to co- go through them and, and find some interesting pattern. And um, you can find some of those experiments on my Twitter um, my Twitter feed. And then at the same time, I've been at the library talking to people and, and, and like, seeing the physical objects, because there are an enormous amount of physical objects in the library. You know, the, li- the library is the largest library in the history of the world, and it's one of the biggest collections of anything, anywhere. So... Uh, we think about books, but there are also manuscripts and maps and recordings and video, uh, movies and films and, and objects of, of all kinds. And, and And it's staggering to even consider what you do with a collection that size. And in fact, that organization, like many, many museums and organizations, that I would say their their core problem is exactly that, that the amount of money that it takes to preserve these objects is enormous, yet one in a thousand of those objects is going to be seen by a human being like in any given year. You know, Most of them are in a box somewhere and not being looked at. So um, we're, we're about 20 years into the great digitization revolution of libraries and archives, which is one step. But maybe there's another step. Maybe there's some other way we can facilitate... The technological changes that are not, aren't just about, like, being able to digitize things to, to, to activate these libraries in different ways. Uh, so that's sort of looking at the,
1: the merging of online and offline data. But what particularly is going on, say, with regards to the world of social media? What sort of insights are we actually getting that maybe aren't sort of identifiable down to the individual, but uh, useful in terms of spotting global trends or even just global novelties?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. In that, I haven't done a lot of sort of social network direct research in a number of years. Um, one of the things I think is really fascinating, though, is that there's a group of researchers, large group of researchers, spread around the world, who have been um, studying specifically Twitter, but their other social networks, um, really focused on um, harassment, hate groups, recruitment, so on and so on and so on. Uh, and they've been doing really, really, really good work that is like almost largely been ignored. And now we're in this place where all these ob- these things have manifested in such in, in such visible ways. And if you go talk to those researchers, though, um, uh, they're like, "Well, have you not been reading my paper? <laughs> like, I like these, we, Like, we published this whole thing about Russian uh, botnets on Twitter last year, and about how they're trying to." you know, push against political systems in all of these countries. And, and and so that, to me, is really interesting, you know, theoretically positive result of social network analysis is the ability to, uh, you know, create at least some type of effort to monitor uh, these types of entities and individuals. Uh, just, just to finish up on one of the projects that
1: um, you talked about, the idea of what advertising can tell you about yourself, yeah um, we all like to think, or rather the, the hype is that the ads that, that hit us are personalized like mm-hmm. never before, you know they have our tastes down to the down to the, the nanosecond, if you will yeah. um, how accurate is
2: advertising at the moment Oh man, how do I answer that question without uh, I, I personally don't th- I think there's a uh, um, targeted advertising has a lot of, perf- a lot of uh, uh, um, showmanship behind it. And that if you listen to the advertisers, they'll tell you that this is very good. And of course they're going to say that because they want their clients to buy ads. But we know when we actually look at the performances of targeted advertising that it's not very good at all. We we know that that's a result of a couple of things, and one is click fraud, which is everywhere and ubiquitous, and nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, and the other thing is that this targeting isn't that good. So we've all had that experience where maybe one day we had a couple drinks, we were like, "I'm going to go look at a watch," and then for the next four years, you see nothing but advertisements for a watch. You know, in the meantime, you've already bought a watch, like you've decided never to wear a watch again, like. And, and 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 there's a lot of that in targeting advertisements. So we built a, a tool called FloodWatch, um, which allows individuals to track their exposure to web ads. And. Um, of all the people that I've ever talked to who's installed and used Flood Watch, none of them have ever said, "My, is that targeted advertisement ever right, ever correct?" Like this is—it's always the opposite. They're always like, "I don't know why they think I like I'm really into this," and, and 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 a lot of that that stuff, like, "Oh my God, that one thing I looked up in in 2005, it's still following me around the internet," um, and that that's kind of funny, but also really worrying. Because of, I think, the way that, that advertisers and, hey, tech writers and everybody else has oversold the efficacy of targeted advertisement, a lot of other industries have jumped on board as well. So insurance is one that I'm particularly concerned about, as insurers are looking to basically use the same technology that advertisers are using to target you an ad to to able to be able to say things about your insurability. So are you somebody who's likely to buy a jet ski? Well, maybe you're not somebody that I want to insure um, for health insurance. Likewise, employers are using this same type of technology to make HR decisions. Again, like, are you somebody who, who searches for a lot of alcohol products? Maybe you have a drinking problem. Maybe I don't want to hire you. Those things are happening, and they're balanced on top of this machinery, which I don't think works very well. And, and, and so, yeah, we're headed, unfortunately, we're headed down not a better path where that's concerned, but I think a, a noticeably worse path. And part, part of the thing that also ensures that path to be worse is the the, the inclusion now of machine learning on top of that, um, because that allows a, kind of, um, allows a kind of disconnect. It allows people to say, oh, it's the algorithm that's doing that. Oh, it's an algorithm that's making this choice. Uh, And and we know a lot of those algorithms are, are in in America anyways, are black boxed legally. So uh, you're not even allowed to go look at how it does because it's protected by patent or it's protected uh, under some other means. So even in cases where they're discriminating, it goes to court. The judge can't even look at what the algorithm's doing because it's protected. So anyways, it's it's not good where we are. Just to finish on a positive note then, one of the applications
1: I was quite taken with um, is it the potential of data for city planning hmm. uh, and generating positive feedback loops. So to, just go through a little bit about uh, how data is being used in this way.
2: Well, I'll, I'll talk about a really specific project that I've been working on for the last four or five years, um, and, and this is a project called Map Room, and we, we, ran a, we ran a version of Map Room in St. Louis in the spring, and we'll be running a, a version of it in New Orleans in, in, in the spring. And the way that Map Room works is that um, we take over an abandoned space in the city. We build a pop-up space where people can come in and, and author these 10-by-10-foot 10 10 maps, 3-by-3-meter uh, 3 3 maps of 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 their lived experience in the city. And then they can use those maps as instruments to explore tons of big data layers that we can put on top of the map, both um, current ones and historic ones. And, And so what that allows citizens to do is the same thing that urban planners have been doing for a number of years, which is to use data to make decisions about what they want in their city or to understand the conditions of their city. The difference here is that we're Putting it in the hands of everybody, so school groups and um, community groups and church groups and whoever wants to come in and 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 use these systems. So that to me, I found really really exciting. And it and it to me, so this project is a, is a, is part of a number of pushbacks that I've been trying to make um, against uh, what we call public data. Is what we call public data tends to not actually serve the public. It tends to serve. You know, the technologically elite slice of the public, but mostly it's being used by urban planners and so on and so on. So, um, can we put it in the the hands of the people? And maybe we can circle all the way back to this idea of like, what does a data community garden look like? Because I think that's what a data community garden looks like these sort of small scale efforts to put data to to work, but to the benefit of individuals and communities
0: and that was our editor Niall Kitson talking to digital artist Jer Thorpe now uh, looking ahead to next week's programme we've got a special deep dive for you looking at digital personal assistance so we're talking about Cortana and ok Google and Siri and all that kind of stuff uh, we have found and spoken with an Irish team who are working on a new kind of digital assistant and this the whole area and what they're doing and what they think about it is fascinating that is lined up for you next week of course remember Remember, you can get details in between here and there on all the breaking Irish tech stories with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from our website, techcentral.ie, as well as our weekly tech radio show online and broadcast every Friday at six on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get tech radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie.